Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for our meditation today is our gospel lesson from Matthew 14, this incredible story where Jesus and Peter walk on the water. You may be seated. So if you spend enough time out on the water, you're eventually going to have some frightening moments and a close call or two. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, my son Ethan and I had a little bit of both. It was Emily and my wedding anniversary, and I surprised her and the kids with a trip up to Marquette, uh, where we met up with some friends from the seminary. My friend Mark brought along his sea kayak, and we had the opportunity at one point to take it out on Lake Superior, uh, with Mark sitting up front and with Ethan sitting on my lap in the back. Now, the day before we went out, uh, there had been a pretty big storm on the lake, very dangerously choppy waters and a small craft advisory uh, during the day and and into the night. But when we were getting ready to set out, it looked like everything was going to go smoothly for us. So we set out from Presque Isle State Park to go around this island that was just a little ways out in the water. And uh, the island was made up entirely of rock, and we made it out there just fine. Uh, Ethan thought that the hundreds of seagulls on the island were pretty cool. And we got a good view of their little colony as we circled the island and began to head back to shore. But that's when it happened. That's when we were nearly caught in a terrible storm, so to speak. So now in my Word for Wednesday devotion, I shared how Emily and I just got to see the film Dunkirk, and in that movie, there are several scenes where German fighter pilots dive bomb allied soldiers on the beach or ships in the sea, all of which are sitting ducks. Well, that's precisely what we were out on Lake Superior, bobbing kind of helplessly up and down as one of the island's avian inhabitants took issue with our proximity to his homeland and swooped down for the kill. When he dropped his payload, Mark cried out, bombs away, and we braced for impact. Thankfully, the bird missed us by a couple of feet, but it was a little bit of a frightening moment and certainly a close call on the water. Well, today in our text, the disciples of Jesus also experience a frightening moment and a close call on the water, both of which were far more serious than ours were. And these two things really are the the two main movements of Matthew's account. The first focuses on the disciples' frightening moment as Jesus comes walking toward them on the sea. And the second focuses on Peter's close call as he walks on the sea and then slips beneath the waves. Now, last week, Pastor Sean preached on the feeding of the 5,000, and he asked you to raise your hand if you wanted to have been there to have seen that miracle, and almost everybody here did that. Well, I'm not so sure you would actually want to see this one, because the people who were there, the disciples, certainly didn't. I don't know about you, but I've often pictured them staring out with awe and admiration at their teacher as he majestically walks toward them on the water. But that's not exactly how it went, was it? Matthew sets the scene for us by telling us that that Jesus had just compelled his disciples to get in the boat and to set out while he dismissed the thousands of people that he had just miraculously fed. Then Jesus goes up on a mountain alone to pray. 
But while he's up there, what are the disciples up to? Matthew says, the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Now there are a couple of things to note here. First, though there does seem to be some rough weather, we are not to understand this situation to be like a previous one the disciples had on the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus was asleep in the boat and and they were terrified that they were going to die. In fact, Matthew says that the boat had already made it a long way from the land, even though the wind was against them. The Greek here literally says that they were many stadia from the land, which means that they were probably already a few miles out. So in other words, the going was tough, but they were making good progress nevertheless. And this is important to know because in a few minutes, when the disciples find themselves absolutely terrified, their fear is not because of the weather or the storm. At the same time, Matthew does say that the boat was being beaten by the waves. And the original Greek word here, used to describe what the waves are doing to the boat, is usually translated torment or torture, almost always used in the context of human suffering. And so more than just a clever use of words, Matthew seems to indicate that even though the storm was not at all endangering the lives of the disciples, it was causing them quite a bit of struggle, perhaps even some pain. And it's not hard to to understand why. All of this was happening, Matthew tells us, in the fourth watch of the night, which is the time from three to six o'clock in the morning. At Jesus' behest, the disciples had taken the red eye across the sea. They'd been up all night fighting against the wind and the waves. They were exhausted, both from the exertion of their work and from a terrible lack of sleep. How about you? Are you exhausted? Are you beaten by the waves? Maybe you find yourself in a desperate struggle with your circumstances. Maybe you're tortured by your sorrows or by a marriage or a friendship that is fraught with mistrust, by your past failures that are paraded in front of your eyes day after day. Maybe you've made some good progress despite all of these things, but then you look back and you see that you're far from the shore and still have a long way yet to go. That's where the disciples found themselves. And that's precisely where Jesus showed up. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. It was the same time of night that God had rescued the Israelites from the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. The same time that God promises in the Psalms that he will help his holy city. The same time, as far as we can tell anyway, that Jesus rose from the dead. This is the time of night, in the middle of the disciples' torturous circumstances, that Jesus appears. But his presence, which should have brought immense comfort and relief, instead brings terror. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. It's easy enough for us to chuckle a little bit at their reaction, but how many times has Jesus shown up in powerful and unexpected ways in our lives and we failed to recognize him? Not a single person in that boat was expecting Jesus to come to them walking on the water. 
And how many times has he worked in your life in ways that you did not anticipate or that you failed to recognize at first? And yet Jesus doesn't respond to his disciples' fear and confusion with irritation or impatience. Instead, he responds to their misguided reaction to his presence by addressing each of their concerns head on. First, Matthew says that they were terrified, and so Jesus responds by saying, Take heart. They thought he was a ghost, but Jesus says, It is I. The disciples had cried out in fear, and so Jesus tells them, Do not be afraid. Jesus' words are not dismissive. They, they don't suggest that the disciples' crisis isn't real at all. Only that in his presence, fear itself can be dismissed. And this is where things start to get really interesting. Because this is where Peter responds by saying, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And to be honest, I've always kind of thought that this was a dumb test. Kind of like in the Middle Ages where they would try to determine if someone was a witch by throwing them in the water to see if they would sink and drown. By the time the test plays itself out, the results are a little too late to be helpful. So if it is Jesus, great, but they'll figure that out soon enough as he comes just a little closer. And if it's not Jesus, if it is a ghost who wishes them harm, then Peter's playing right into its hands by jumping in the water and drowning. But here again, the original Greek comes in pretty handy because the construction that Matthew uses indicates that Peter's if statement is one that he believes to be true. And he's confident enough in this that he's willing to stake his life on it. Now, Peter often talks big and doesn't quite measure up, and we'll see soon enough that that happens here also. But it's not for no reason that Peter is often considered the hero in this story. He certainly exhibits incredible faith, but it will prove to be a foolish kind of faith. Walking on water was actually found elsewhere in ancient literature, but it was always something that only the gods could do. So on the one hand, with Jesus walking on water, we see that he is the one that God says to Job, shut up the seas, putting limits to them. At the same time, it would be the height of absurdity for a mere man to think himself able to walk on the water. So to the original readers of Matthew's gospel, Peter probably would have looked like the ultimate fool to ask Jesus to call him out there. And it's actually a little bit unclear whether we're supposed to see Peter as this great example that we should follow or as a great fool whose example we ought to avoid. I actually think it's a little bit of both. If he is meant as an example for us to follow, notice that he will not do something so foolish without a clear and direct command from Jesus himself. So the lesson of this account is certainly not that God desires us to make an unreasonable and foolish leap of faith of our own choosing in order to prove our faith or to accomplish something big and grand. Maybe you've heard the popular saying or read the book with this title, if you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. Well, I think there's some truth to this. I think that, that as, a, as a whole, this way of thinking is, is perhaps 
not quite as biblical as we've often assumed because this interpretation tends to put the focus on ourselves instead of on Jesus, which is, of course, what Peter's problem was all along. When he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. I don't have any fill-in-the-blanks for you in the sermon outline today, so I apologize for those of you who like to to listen for the word to put in there. Uh, But I would invite you to get those out now if you don't have them out already, because I actually have a correction to make. Now, our pastoral team here will tell you that I'm normally a a pretty strong advocate of the ESV translation, so it it kind of hurts my heart a little bit to say that, that I think they got this one wrong. There is no way that Peter said this with a period instead of an exclamation point. He undoubtedly shouted this desperate prayer with a full-throated cry, probably half-choked by the waters that were surging all around him. Lord, save me as you are about to drown is the ultimate exclamation. So if you can take a pencil or a pen or something and uh, make that period into a really big exclamation point. Lord, save me. One of the early church fathers described this frantic plea as the groan of Peter's repentance, the helpless but hopeful recognition that salvation will never come from himself, but only from Jesus. Lord, save me, therefore ought to be the cry of every Christian's heart, an acknowledgement of our weakness that begs for Jesus' help. And just as Jesus reached out his hand into the rolling waters of the lake, to rescue Peter, he will just as surely save us. As Paul famously remarked in our epistle lesson, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter, you, and me. Just like us, Peter was the cause of his own danger. His foolishness and his fear led him to the edge of the abyss, just as our sin and our rebellion against God had led us to the edge of eternal death. But Peter's willing to acknowledge all of this and to look to the right place for help, to acknowledge that he is 100% helpless and that if he survives, Jesus will be 100% responsible for saving his life. I think if Peter were here today, he would be the first to tell you that the strength of his faith is really not being put forth as an example for us to follow here. Rather, his weakness is being showcased in order to highlight the identity and the power and the saving grace of Jesus. I believe Peter would have us to recognize ourselves in him and to see in the hostile waters those things which threaten us. Sin, insecurity, sickness, death. And in case we're still struggling to figure this all out, Jesus makes it pretty clear with what he says right before he plops Peter back in the boat and then climbs aboard himself. Jesus doesn't have any words of praise for Peter here. He, he doesn't say, good job, Peter. You know, that was such a great effort. You almost made it. Jesus doesn't tell Peter that, you know, Peter, if you had just trusted just a little bit more, you would have been okay. Now Jesus says, oh you of little faith, why did you doubt? 
On the one hand, this seems a little bit unfair to say to somebody who just walked on the water himself. Just as God's response to Job maybe seems a little unfair when he reams him out for questioning God's purposes in his life. In a way, Jesus' words to Peter sound like God's words to Job when he said, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And yet, in these words of rebuke, we are invited to find great comfort because, like Peter, we too are often of little faith, slow to recognize Jesus, and quick to take our eyes off of him to see the the tumult of the world's waves pitching up and down all around us. And so I don't believe that the moral of this story is really so much that we are supposed to succeed where Peter failed insofar as knowing what we know now that that we, unlike him, can keep our eyes on Jesus perfectly and without fail and and walk on water. This is incidentally what the, the famous philosopher Johann Goethe believed when he wrote that this story expresses the noble doctrine that the human person will be victorious in the most difficult enterprise with faith and hearty courage, while he will be lost by the least touch of doubt. I think Goethe gets it quite wrong here, and not just because the phrase human person is pretentious and redundant. No, I believe the moral of this story is quite the opposite. The moral of the story is that you will fail and you will fall. The waves will crash all around you and at times they will be too much and they will overcome you. And Jesus will be there. In the fourth watch of the night, his nail-pierced hand will lift you out of the abyss of death and plant you firmly in his boat, in his presence. As one commentator has written, this miracle is far more than the story of what Jesus did once in a lake in far-off Palestine. It is the sign and the symbol of what he always does for his people when the wind is contrary and we are in danger of being overwhelmed. Both here and on the cross where Jesus spread out his arms in love for you, Jesus has shown his undying willingness to save the foolhardy and the doubting, and that even those with little faith can cry out to him and be heard and be saved. So no matter where you are today, whether you're pressing against the wind and and being beaten by the waves, whether you're straddling the boat or walking on water or sinking beneath the surf, whether you're narrowly avoiding the seagull's attacks or being hit full on, today, May we all join our hearts in crying out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And like Peter, find in him forgiveness and life and salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Now may the peace of God which transcends our understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.